Despite their utterly spent energy and broken bodies, the two halflings continued their attempt to make it up the ominous black and gray volcano, Mount Doom. The two had already suffered the loss of dear friends to violent deaths at the hands of the evil forces of darkness. They themselves had narrowly escaped numerous life-threatening and injurious trials, including evading the Dark Lord, Sauron's gaze, as well as his evil armies. As their mission was not yet complete, starving, bleeding, and exhausted, they paused a moment on the side of the mountain among the jagged and sharp volcanic rocks to rest. Evil was about to declare victory on their world, and the situation seemed completely hopeless. The only light by which to see was provided by the molten lava of an unstable mountain. Sam looked up into the dark, the cloud-shrouded sky, as he had held on to the broken body of his lifelong friend and companion, Mr. Frodo. The clouds parted ever so slightly, revealing a clear and deep sliver of sky, and in it, a bright star. Mr. Frodo, Sam said, look, there is light and beauty up there that no shadow can touch. Many will recognize this scene from the J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings Return of the King, which was directed by Peter Jackson. It's a scene that's close to the end of the movie that comes just before the, quote, end of the age, unquote, in Sam and Mr. Frodo's fictional world, which is called Middle-Earth. It's powerful and moving when you grasp the parallels between what's going on in that fictional world and what is in the world's very real future. It's a scene conveying hope in the middle of the worst kinds of trials and tribulations, for the follower of Jesus who's waiting on his return, the parallel is clear. No matter how bad the world may get, no matter how broken, beaten, and persecuted by the forces of evil we become, the kingdom of heaven lies just on the other side of the shroud of our ability to see. And King Jesus will soon be bringing that kingdom to this world. The common understanding of the word hope in our day means little more than to wish for something. However, that is not the hope of the follower of Jesus. The hope found in the Bible for God's elect is a hope that means we are waiting on something and fully expecting it to happen. As illustrative as Tolkien's novel is, we don't have to watch nine hours of the Lord of the Rings trilogy to understand the real hope that awaits us. Our hope is found in Scripture. Our hope regarding the end of the age is found in the return of the real king, Jesus. According to the words Jesus has just spoken to his disciples on the Mount of Olives, things will look pretty bleak just prior to the end of the age. Yet, things are about to get a whole lot better. Jesus moves on to talk about what he just referred to as cutting short the days for the sake of the elect, his return. He starts by emphasizing that his return will not be a secret. His followers will not have to go looking for him. He will find them. Here are Jesus' words found in Matthew 24, verses 23 to 26. At that time, if anyone says to you, Look, here or there is the Messiah, don't believe it. For there will arise false messiahs and false prophets, and they will show great signs and wonders, so much so that they will deceive, if it's possible, 
even the elect. Pay attention. I have told you before. So, if anyone says to you, Look, he's in the desert, don't go out. Or see, he is in a secret room, don't believe it. Mark puts it this way. This is in Mark 13, 21 to 23. And then, if anyone says to you, Look, there is the Messiah, or look, there he is, don't believe them. For false messiahs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders to seduce, if it is possible, even the elect. So you watch out. Look, I have told you everything ahead of time. In the coming verses, Jesus will describe the final sign of his return. These signs will be unmistakable, although many who walk in the darkness may not know what to make of them. No one can miss them. Jesus is giving his followers, those who walk in the light, all the information they need to avoid the deception of false messiahs and false prophets. These deceivers will have the ability to perform miracles of a caliber that may fool even the elect. However, his coming will not occur in a manner that could simply be validated by someone performing what appear to be miracles. So if we hear of someone claiming to be the Christ and backing it up with miracles, or someone claiming to be a prophet of God who's performing miracles and claiming that they know where and when Jesus will return, we are not to trust them. As I've discussed in previous podcasts, the false prophet, the Antichrist's religious right-hand man, will have the ability to perform signs and wonders, even calling down fire from heaven. You can read about that in Revelation chapter 13, verses 13 to 14. With the times as terrible as they will be in the last days, many will be looking for something or someone to save them. Those who are awaiting a Messiah will be eager to see him. Some, tired of suffering, may be too eager and end up falling victim to the deception of a false Messiah. There's some who say, or at least they think, people who pay attention to Bible prophecy or study scripture concerning end times events are more likely to be deceived and end up selling their possessions and sitting on a mountaintop to await the Lord's return. It is true that overzealous watching, sans knowledge of the truth, can lead to a bad ending. However, knowing what Jesus said regarding his return and being watchful is the best protection from being fooled into selling your possessions and sitting on a mountaintop while you wait for Jesus to return. It'll be those that are ignorant of scriptures pertaining to the end of the age who will be most easily fooled. Perhaps those who will be caught off guard, not watching, who don't think they'll even be around for any signs to take place. They'll be the most susceptible. Jesus is very clear that the false prophets and false messiahs of the end of the age will be quite skilled in the art of deception, even possessing the abilities in some cases to perform signs and wonders. This is critical information to have to avoid falling into a trap. Even those who have been elected to salvation may be fooled. And please don't miss this. As if to say he won't accept any excuses, Jesus says, Look, I have told you ahead of time. Well, in 1904, the Watchtower Society, or the Jehovah's Witnesses organization, said, quote, 
The stress of the great time of trouble will be on us soon. Somewhere between 1910 and 1912, culminating with the end of the Times of the Gentiles in October of 1914. Unquote. Later, the same group declared that Jesus had in fact come back in secret in 1914 to the temple, where he cleansed it. Jesus was done with this work by apparently 1918. However, Since no one actually saw Jesus, they claimed that it was not a physical return, but rather a spiritual return. As of August 2005, there were 6,613,829 Jehovah's Witnesses that hold this belief. That makes at least 6.5 million people that are not listening to the commands and warnings that Jesus gave his followers on the Mount of Olives. Quote, If someone says, Look, He is in the secret inner room. Don't believe it. Unquote. After making his point that the return will not be a secret event, Jesus next emphasizes just how public it will be. This is in Matthew chapter 24, verse 27. For as lightning comes from the east and shines to the west, so shall be the coming of the Son of Man. Like a bolt of lightning that flashes in one specific place and can yet be seen and heard way beyond the horizon, so will be the return of Jesus. Yes, Jesus will return to a specific place in the Middle East. But why don't you need to worry about missing the return of the Messiah? Because it will be a spectacle for the entire world to see. This is the Son of God's return to earth to rescue his people and establish his kingdom. There will be no mistaking it. Matthew 24, 27 indicates, like several verses to follow, that the signs accompanying this event will be easily seen. This is because, for the most part, the events will take place in the sky. Next, let's spend a little time talking about a bizarre saying. This is in the next verse in Matthew 24, verse 28. It says, For wherever the corpse is, There the eagles will gather. The King James Version says vultures instead of eagles. From our 21st century perspective, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather is really a bizarre statement. Jesus had said this same thing before. It may have been a common saying during the time of Jesus, something like, You catch more flies with honey. What would this saying about corpses and vultures have meant to the first century inhabitants of Judea? the people that Jesus was originally speaking to. Well, there are several theories out there. I have one that I favor strongly, but I want to tell you about a few others. Here's one such theory. In his book, The Pre-Wrath Rapture of the Church, Messianic Jew and End Times book author and publisher Marvin Rosenthal says that this statement by Jesus was a, quote, familiar Hebraic expression, unquote. Rosenthal states that the meaning of this expression is that Moral corruption requires divine judgment. Carcasses in this case represent moral decay, and the eagles gathering implies divine judgment. Well, pastor and longtime through the Bible radio commentator Dr. J. Vernon McGee agrees with Rosenthal's assessment. Dr. McGee states that, quote, the birds that feed on carrion seem to be agents of divine judgment, unquote. Preterist commentator David Chilton wrote that this scripture is consistent with other prophetic warnings regarding Israel's destruction, that such warnings are, quote, 
often couched in terms of eagles descending upon carrion, unquote. There's a very similar saying found in a very similar end times passage in the book of Luke, chapter 17. To set up the statement, please listen to the following passage that leads up to it. Some of this should sound really familiar. This is in Luke, chapter 17, verses 30 to 35. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you that in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. Jesus is talking about the end of the age. In response to his statement about one being taken and the other left, his disciples have a question for him. What location will this taking of people occur? Here's that question and Jesus' answer found in Luke 17:37. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. The same statement that he makes in Matthew. In the interpreter's one-volume commentary on the Bible, Author William Baird says that this verse means, Wherever men refuse to be alert and ready for the Son of Man in faith, there will be judgment. Well, I don't know if Mr. Baird took into consideration the question that was asked of Jesus or not, but it doesn't seem to have much to do with his interpretation. The disciples are asking where the taking will occur. They're not asking anything about judgment. This explanation of what this phrase means just doesn't seem to fit given the question the disciples asked Jesus. Surrounding this statement in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus is only talking about his return, which seems to be out of place with all of the interpretations regarding judgment. In the preceding several verses, the context all has to do with where, or more precisely, where or how is Jesus not going to return. He's saying it won't be in secret, and it won't be necessary to go looking for him. Jesus has gone from talking about trials, persecution, and tribulations at the hand of the Antichrist to not being fooled by false saviors and prophets. He turns to what his return will be like. It will be like lightning flashing from the east to the west, powerful, irresistible, unmistakable, something we won't have to go looking for or need to worry about missing. Why would he now throw in an out-of-context and cryptic statement about judging the unrighteous? The current topic he's addressing is that of recognizing his coming. After this statement about the gathering of eagles, or vultures in some translations, he'll continue to describe the sign of his coming, which will include the gathering of the elect. There's another theory. 18th century Bible commentator Matthew Henry has a different theory about Jesus' answer to his disciples concerning what where means. He says that this verse is communicating that wherever Jesus is, believers in him will instinctively find him. Henry might be hitting it a little closer to being in line with what Jesus is talking about here. The eagles, or Christians, according to his interpretation, are irresistibly gathered to the carcass or body, the body being Jesus. 
In the same manner, vultures always seem to somehow find the carcass of an animal in the middle of nowhere, so will the followers of Jesus be gathered to him. This is an interesting interpretation of this scripture. In just a couple of nights from when the disciples sat with Jesus on the Mount of Olives, Jesus would be telling his disciples that the bread they ate at the Passover meal represented his body that would be broken. Many Christians come together to this day, of course, to partake in the eating of the body of Christ. Jesus may well have been adding to the meaning of what he would tell them at the Passover meal in this statement. Still, something doesn't seem quite right. Something just doesn't flow with this interpretation. Both Matthew 24:27 that mentions lightning and verse 28, which talks about eagles or vultures gathering, are verses that primarily utilize symbolism to make a point. Now, symbolism is when one thing stands for something else. It's not just intended to be a big mystery. It's intended to be solved. Symbols need to be defined to be understood, or they are meaningless. Most of the time, the symbolism found in prophecy is defined nearby in the passage. The lightning symbolism is easy. The lightning flashing across the sky stands for what the return of Jesus will be like. When the definition of symbols is not found near to where the symbols are used, we can carefully expand our search outward to look for definitions. I believe the versions of the interpretations I've just given you concerning this scripture from Rosenthal and McGee and Chilton that speak of judgment came about as a result of looking too far away in scripture in an attempt to define this weird symbolism represented in these verses. They took the passages from elsewhere in the Bible that deal with predatory birds, which for the most part do have to do with God's judgment, and they inferred that this passage had to do with judgment. However, I believe the definition of this symbolism is found much closer to home. There's another interpretation of this scripture that seems to fit the best. This interpretation relies mostly on defining the symbolism used by examining the context of the surrounding verses. The event that Jesus is describing with this bizarre symbolic language is his coming and the gathering together of his elect. Compare the following verse of the coming of Christ to the symbolic verse describing his coming being like lightning. First Matthew 24 verse 27 regarding the lightning. For as lightning comes out of the east and shines even to the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Well, three verses later, in Matthew 24:30, the lightning symbolism is defined. It says this, And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now, let's do the same thing comparing the verse about bodies or corpses or carcasses and the eagles or vultures gathering. This is verse 28. For wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. Three verses later, the vulture gathering symbolism is defined. This is in Matthew 24:31. It says this, And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. The word that's been translated as carcass can also be translated as body. In a parallel scripture that describes the same event, Paul tells us that the dead in Christ shall rise and those who are alive will be caught up with them together.
This is what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-17. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. The angels also known as eagles, Jesus brings with him are not literal birds. They'll be the ones that do the gathering of the bodies of the elect of God from one end of the sky to the other. It's not the bodies of the elect, the carcasses of the elect, that will gather to Jesus. It's the carcasses of the elect that are gathered to Jesus by his eagles slash a.k.a. angels. It'll be the bodies of the elect who are alive and the carcasses or dead bodies of the elect who are no longer alive that'll be gathered by the angels to Jesus, just to state it clearly again. Jesus' answer to his disciples' question of where will this gathering happen was essentially to say, don't worry about where to go. I'll provide the transportation from wherever you're at and you'll be brought to me. Another way of looking at or stating Matthew 24, verse 28, would be to say, Regardless of where the elect are located on the earth, the angels will find and collect them all. In summary, the message of Jesus is clear in regards to his return. We don't need to worry that we'll miss it. It'll not take place in secret. It will shake the world like a bolt of lightning for all to see. If you're one of the elect, you don't need to worry about finding your way to Jesus. Once he comes, he will arrange transportation for you, whether you're dead or alive at the time of his return. Well, let's move on and talk about the similarity of what we've seen so far in the Olivet Discourse and what we see in the book of Revelation. At this point in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus relays more details of his second coming. One would expect that what Jesus had to say about end times events on the Mount of Olives would match up well with what the rest of the Bible has to say. Well, that's indeed the case. There are interesting parallel scriptures found in the book of Revelation, chapter 6, that aid in better understanding portions of the Olivet Discourse. This should be no surprise, since it was Jesus who spoke to his disciples on the Mount of Olives, and it was Jesus who revealed further details regarding the end of the age to the Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos. It was on the island of Patmos that John received a vision from Jesus recorded in the book of Revelation. The Apostle John was present on the Mount of Olives with Jesus during the Olivet Discourse. Remember, he was one of the four disciples that approached Jesus quote, privately, unquote, that Tuesday evening. You can read about that in Mark 13.3. For the rest of this podcast, I'm going to compare the teaching of Jesus as he spoke to his disciples on the Mount of Olives with what takes place in Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 to 11, as the first five seals of a very special scroll are loosed. We'll see that the two passages line up somewhat sequentially. To catch you up on what's going on in the passage we'll be reviewing in the book of Revelation, we need to first look at chapter 6, which describes a scene playing out in the throne room of heaven. There, we find four fantastic winged creatures around the throne of God. The Apostle John has been taken to heaven and is the one who's witnessing and writing down what is taking place before him. 
There is a scroll that John wrote about, which contains the will of God pertaining to his final judgment of the earth. The scroll is sealed with seven seals. Each and every seal needs to be broken before the scroll can be opened and God's judgment can take place. Jesus appears as a lamb that's been slain in this vision. He's the only one to have been found worthy to take the scroll from the hand of the Almighty God who's sitting on the throne and break the seven seals. This is what the Apostle John wrote down. This is found in Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that men should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. And when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth, to kill with the sword, and with famine, and with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. When the first seal in Revelation chapter 6 is broken, a rider on a white horse appears. The rider is interpreted by some to be Jesus. Jesus is seen later in Revelation riding on a white horse in white robes. That's in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 to 16. Believing this writer to be Jesus is the case with several commentators. Although there's nothing indicating this will occur in Scripture, they see this writer, Jesus, as victoriously proclaiming the gospel throughout the world. However, besides the fact we don't see any indication of any sort of revival taking place in the last days, casting Jesus in this role causes storyline confusion. The writer is holding a weapon, a bow, and it's bent on conquest. It also seems out of place to think this writer is Jesus, considering everything else associated with the loosing of the seal of the scroll is catastrophic in nature and represents trials and tribulations. This crown-wearing writer of the white horse has also been called by many other commentators to be an imitator of Christ. Some would even say he is the Antichrist. The Antichrist is thought to have been awarded his crown through conquest and deception. This is consistent with what we know of the Antichrist and his activities. When we only consider the scripture in Revelation regarding the first horse that rides out, there's not a strong case supporting that this horse and rider represent the Antichrist or spirit of the Antichrist. Nor is a strong case made that this character is anything of a deceiver. However, when we compare the entire sequence of events in the Olivet Discourse, 
with the sequence of events of the seals of the scroll of Revelation being opened, a stronger case is made. If this writer does indeed represent a false Christ or false Christs, the Antichrist or spirit of deception, it's interesting that even some Bible scholars are fooled by the symbolism. Some commentators have already seemingly become deceived as they confuse the character sitting on the white horse with the real Messiah who rides a white horse later in Revelation chapter 19. What is it we see Jesus warning about first in the Olivet Discourse? We see many are coming as imitators of Christ, false messiahs, false saviors, deceivers. They'll be successful in deceiving many. Indeed, many have been deceived throughout the centuries. Many are now being deceived, and many will continue to be. Each of the four horse riders that ride out as a result of a seal being broken are associated with activities that have been going on since the world began. Deception, death, famine, etc. This goes hand in hand with what Jesus has said thus far in the Olivet Discourse. Now we see in the book of Revelation that the horsemen are given something they didn't have up until the time when the seals of the scroll containing God's judgments for the earth are opened. Each rider is given something different. The rider of the white horse is now seeing a bow and he's given a crown. The rider of the red horse will be given power to take peace from the earth and a large sword, literally in the original language, a mega weapon. The rider of the black horse will be given a pair of scales. The rider of the pale horse is given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by the sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. Although these symbolic riders have been through many cycles before, the things that they are given are unique to the last ultimate cycle associated with the end of the age. Even though Jesus starts out in the Olivet Discourse warning about deception in general, the kind of deception there always has been, he eventually talks about a type of deception that's intense enough to fool even those who have been elect. A spirit of deception has existed in the world since Satan deceived Eve into taking a bite of the forbidden fruit. However, if the riders of the four horses in the book of Revelation are given extra tools to work with in the time immediately preceding the second coming of Christ, then we're looking at unparalleled deception during the end of days. Deception that may even fool the elect, if that were possible. The spirits of Antichrist and deception have been riding throughout the world long since before Jesus was born. But in the end, as seen in Revelation chapter 6, the rider of the white horse will be given a crown. A crown is a sign of authority, and he'll be bent on conquest. The first warning that Jesus gives on the Mount of Olives was in regards to deception. Because of the rest of the sequential similarities between the Olivet Discourse and Revelation chapter 6 that follow, I believe the white horse and its rider, a Jesus look-alike imitator, represents the false prophets and deception Jesus warned of on the Mount of Olives. These false prophets will be working in conjunction with the Antichrist. If the Antichrist will do anything, it will be to appear to save the world, while in fact he is conquering it through deception and force. Following the mention of the coming of deception in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus speaks of war. 
Parallel to this in the book of Revelation, the Apostle John documents that when the second seal of the scroll is broken, a rider appears on a red horse who has power to take peace from the earth. To him was given a, quote, mega weapon, unquote. Again, as Jesus points out, wars have been around a long time and don't necessarily indicate that it's the end of the world. However, as this writer of Revelation rides out, who's associated with war, he is given a mega weapon to utilize. Like the rider of the white horse who has been riding throughout time deceiving people, it appears just prior to the end of the age, this rider, representing war, is given the ability to kick it up a bit. If the events that are associated with the return of Christ are the ultimate fulfillment of all cycles of wars that have previously occurred, can you imagine what's in store for the end of the age? From what Jesus has just told his disciples and what we've learned from the book of Daniel, the Antichrist will command a powerful military force. When the third seal of the Revelation chapter 6 scroll is broken, we see a writer appear that's associated with economic collapse. A quart of wheat will cost a person an entire day's wages. Back then, a denarius was a full day's wages. Believe it or not, a full day's wages were just a penny in the days that the King James Version of the Bible was being translated. Paying a full day's wages for basic food is exactly what one might expect in the midst of a severe famine. Not surprisingly, in lockstep with the Olivet Discourse, Famine is the next thing that was spoken of by Jesus on the Mount of Olives back in Matthew 24, verse 7. Hunger is a word that can be used in place of famines. Pestilence is something that causes famines. Famines are synonymous with the kind of inflation related to scarcity of food we see in parallel Revelation passages. Upon opening the fourth seal of the scroll, a writer named Death appears. People have been doomed to die since the fall of Adam. However, death is mentioned here due to the unparalleled death rate associated with the end of the age. The writer named Death appears to use the same tools as previously mentioned when the first three seals were open, war, famine, etc. However, upon opening the fourth seal, Death is given permission to rule over a fourth part of the earth. Additionally, to claim his victims, the writer named Death will utilize persecution when the next seal of Revelation, chapter 6, is open. Beyond wars, earthquakes, famines, and pestilence associated with the second coming will be the persecution of the church and all of those who don't align themselves with the Antichrist. The next issue in sequence in the book of Revelation, and what we've seen thus far in the Olivet Discourse, is the persecution of the Jews and the church. Again, as discussed in previous podcasts, persecution is not unique to the end times. The similarities between Revelation chapter 6 and the events of the Olivet Discourse don't make or break any particular prophetic second coming model that I'm seeking to demonstrate. Few would argue against both passages speaking of the end of the age. The two parallel passages serve to complement one another, where Jesus warns of events in one passage the other passage provides more details. The Apostle John was present for both uncoverings or revelations of end times prophetic events, on the Mount of Olives around 30 AD and on the Isle of Patmos around 97 AD. The sequence observed in both passages and the similarities continue throughout a significant portion of the Olivet Discourse. This allows us to overlay 
the events of Revelation chapter 6, on top of the events of the Olivet Discourse, and gives us the opportunity to fill in some blanks and put together a more complete composite picture of the Second Coming using Scripture and not speculation. The next extremely strong similarity that we will observe in both passages which follow the persecution of God's chosen people will be the event that will shorten the days for the sake of the elect. This is the anchor event that ties the passages unmistakably together. It is the sign of the return of Jesus. Of course, everyone is always interested in timing. When will the events associated with each of these broken seals take place? The Bible does not provide enough details to give us a clear answer. However, there are some things that we do know. For example, the events are given in a specific order. Our first face value assumption should be that this order was for a reason. Jesus could have revealed the events to John some other way than the order that they were revealed in. One comes before two, two before three, etc. That being said, except for the sixth seal, which is associated with a specific event, there's nothing to indicate that the events corresponding with each seal will not take place concurrently or at the same time, rather than consecutively one after another. They'll likely overlap. For example, the deception represented by the white horse rider in the first seal will likely take place throughout the entire tribulation period. The sixth seal, which we'll discuss in the next podcast, is unquestionably tied to the second coming of Jesus and the rapture of the church. The sum of scripture suggests that this will take place sometime during the second half of the seven-year tribulation period. The fifth seal is associated with the souls of martyrs in heaven. We know that there will be a great persecution which takes place following the unveiling of the Antichrist and the abomination of desolation. The yet-to-be-resurrected souls seen under the altar in heaven are given white robes to wear, suggesting they'll soon have a body to wear on them. Both of these things suggest that the fifth seal is open after the event of the abomination of desolation, sometime during the second half of the tribulation period. The timing of the first four seals is not as easy to determine. The first four seals stand out from the remaining three seals in that they are associated with four horsemen. Although a case can be made that these horsemen have been riding throughout history, each of them is giving something new as they ride out during the end of the age. The first seal, likely representing deception and the Antichrist, suggests a timing sometime prior to the initiation of the covenant being confirmed. The breaking of the first seal may even be associated with the Antichrist's rise to power before the covenant. That can mean it's open years before the seven-year period begins. Logically, the next three seals would follow the first seal and take place before the fifth seal is open. Beyond this, at this point in my study of Scripture, I don't believe we're given anything more specific and I'm not willing to speculate because of the risk of having tunnel vision and missing something. Well, in summary, there's many passages in the Bible that speak of the same end of the age that Jesus was speaking about to his disciples on the Mount of Olives. Since they all deal with the same time, it makes sense that there will be similarities. By overlaying the passages where it's safe to say they're referring to the same events, we can fill in a great deal of detail. During his Mount of Olives talk to his disciples prior to his crucifixion, 
Jesus gave them an idea what the end of the age will look like from an earthly perspective. During Jesus' later revelation to the Apostle John, who was also present for the first talk on the Mount of Olives, Jesus revealed details regarding the end of the age from a unique and awe-inspiring perspective of being in the throne room of God. Two different perspectives of the same events. And those events are, number one, deception at the hand of or at least related to the Antichrist. Number two, an increase in war or high potential of the use of a mega weapon. Number three, an increase in famine and outrageous inflation. Number four, an increase in the death rate. And number five, unpersecuted persecution. As we've previously talked about in past podcasts, since deception, war, famine, death, and persecution have always been a part of history, even though these things will greatly increase at the end of the age, since they are so subjective and relative to history and an unknown future, they can only be looked at as the stage that the end will play out on. The exception is the persecution associated with the Antichrist after he is revealed by means of committing the act of the abomination of desolation. The persecution under the Antichrist's reign of terror will be so bad that no human being would survive. However, for the sake of the elect of God, he will intervene and save his people. That's what we'll see happen next in both Jesus' Olivet Discourse and in his revelation to John, when the sixth seal of the scroll is loosed by Jesus. That's the topic for next time. Until then, God bless and Maranatha. Until my next podcast, you can follow me on Facebook by going to the Doug Hooley Ministries page. I'm on Twitter at at Doug H. Ministries. And I'm on Instagram at Doug Hooley Ministries. Find out about what I'm working on and read some of my blogs at DougHooley.com or email me at Doug at DougHooley.com. That's Doug at D-O-U-G-H-O-O-L-E-Y dot com. I'd love to hear from you. This has been the Called Out Cafe. So long and God bless.